You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. U.S. prosecutors unseal the indictment of a former U.S. Air Force counterintelligence specialist on charges she conspired to commit espionage on behalf of Iran. The U.S. Treasury Department announces further sanctions on Iranian individuals and one organization named in that indictment. Two alleged members of Apophis Squad are indicted. And whatever became of all the data stolen from Equifax? That information's apparently not for sale on the dark web. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, February 14th, 2019. Today's news has a great deal to do with espionage. This time, the espionage in question is, according to the U.S. Departments of Justice and the Treasury, Iranian. The U.S. Department of Justice has unsealed an indictment against Monica E. Witt, now also known as Fatima Zara. She's a former U.S. Air Force technical sergeant who served as a counterintelligence specialist and Farsi linguist between 1997 and 2008. After leaving the Air Force in 2008, she continued to work as a government contractor, first briefly for Booz Allen Hamilton, and then for around two years for Shinega Federal Systems. Before she defected to Iran in 2013, the Washington Post reports, The FBI warned her she was probably the target of recruitment by Iranian intelligence, and she promised to be careful if she returned to Iran, and also promised not to give Iran classified material. The indictment charges, of course, that she did exactly that. Recruitment there was, according to the Justice Department. A quite public turn in sympathies was marked by her attendance of a New Horizons organization conference in Iran on Hollywoodism, that is, the depravity of American popular culture. The indictment alleges that after her defection, Ms. Witt created dossiers, target packages, for Iranian intelligence services on her former colleagues in counterintelligence, thereby contributing to the social engineering of U.S. security and intelligence personnel. The indictment indicates that there were six manners, ways, and means of the conspiracy by which Ms. Witt is alleged to have committed espionage. She used her position as a special agent with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations to gain access to classified information. She traveled to Iran, where she identified herself as a U.S. military veteran. She met with members of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and expressed a desire to defect to Iran. She provided her bona fides to the Revolutionary Guard to demonstrate that she was willing and able to pass them information that would interest them. She created target packages to enable the Iranian government to target U.S. counterintelligence agents. Finally, the indictment says, she provided U.S. national defense information to the Iranian government. Four Iranian nationals were also indicted. 
They're referred to collectively as the cyber conspirators because they acted against at least eight U.S. operators, counterintelligence agents, using various social engineering techniques to compromise them and gain access to their organizational networks. The social engineering techniques include spear phishing, fraudulent use of stolen identities, and at least one catfish. These attempts seem to have been at least partially successful. All eight of the U.S. agents whom the cyber conspirators approached had at one time, the Justice Department said in a public statement, worked or interacted with Monica Witt. The indictment is worth reading, not the least for the set of definitions it lays out at the beginning. Target package is worth a note. It means what you would think. A target package, according to the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, is, quote, a document or set of documents assembled to enable an intelligence or military unit to find, fix, track, and neutralize a threat, end quote. A human target package of the kind Miss Witt is alleged to have prepared on her former colleagues includes not only the targeted person's official position, but an analysis of personal vulnerabilities or other opportunities to exploit the individual and confirmation of the identity and location of the individual. It also recommends a neutralization plan, where neutralization might include apprehension, recruitment, cyber exploitation, or capture-kill operations. In this case, the cyber conspirators are thought to have carried out such neutralization plans. This kind of social engineering is traditional espionage craft carried out in cyberspace. Needless to say, Ms. Witt is not in U.S. custody. She's probably still in Iran. Apparently, she was a volunteer whose eagerness to serve put some Iranian intelligence officers on their guard, suspecting she herself might be used against them. But ultimately, they apparently decided that she was the genuine article, an ideological motivated asset. In her frustration with Iranian slowness, Ms. Witt apparently considered going to either WikiLeaks or the Russians instead, but her heart appears to have been in Tehran. In a coordinated action, the U.S. Treasury Department announced sanctions against the four Iranians and the New Horizons Organization, a now notorious front group of the Revolutionary Guard. Researchers at Nokia recently published the latest version of their Threat Intelligence Report. Kevin McNamee is director of the Nokia Threat Intelligence Lab. The main thing that we found in this report was the... uh the, the increase in IoT botnets, uh, rogue IoT devices on the on the internet. These devices are being collected, gathered together, and, and uh, formed into botnets that can be used uh, primarily for DDoS attacks. Uh, they are also used for credential stuffing. They're used for coin mining, and uh, also used for identity theft. To put it in perspective, the the IoT bots themselves were responsible for about seventy eight percent of the actual network activity we, we, we detected in, in the, the networks where we're deployed. And, and so what does this indicate to you in terms of you know, year-over-year trends and what we might expect this year? In the upcoming year, I only would expect it to, to increase. We started to see this activity uh, in, in 2016, uh, and 2017, with the outbreak of the Mirai botnet. Mm. And the Mirai source code was actually distributed on the, the network that was given away publicly. And since then, we've seen an evolution of a number of, a fairly large number of different IoT bots based on this Mirai source code. And what are you seeing in terms of effectively defending against these sorts of things? Have we, have we grown in sophistication from that end of things? 
Sadly, no, not at the moment. But there's certainly there's a number of efforts by various uh, by by the carriers themselves, by by standards organizations to help solve solve this problem. Uh, the main issue with the IoT devices, of course, is they're on the network and they're they're unprotected. These tend to be small devices. They don't have antivirus. They're not protected by firewalls. So if they are visible, uh, and in other words, if they have a public uh, internet IP address or they're accessible through a home router. Uh, it is possible to scan these devices, and they'll literally be infected. If they're vulnerable, they'll be infected in a matter of in a matter of minutes on mm-hmm. on on the internet itself. So the, the key thing, one thing that protects them is if you can conceal their presence from the internet itself. If you've got a home network, make sure you've got your your home router correctly configured so they're not visible to the internet. Uh, and if you're on a you know on a, on a sort of deployed on a mobile network and a carrier network, uh, then again. The use of carrier grade NAT or something like that, the, the 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 service provider can provide some protection by making these devices less visible. Now, one of the things the report points out is that uh, you know we expect to see five G networks coming online uh, throughout this year, and and that could have an effect on the adoption of IoT devices there. Yeah, that's correct. I think five uh, G in general, from a security perspective, brings it brings some very good uh, new developments to the security area. But it also creates a situation that can can be potentially bad. Uh, the, the good stuff that's there is that the the whole control plane is now encrypted and strongly authenticated, which is 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 really good. Uh, they've introduced slicing, which provides network uh, segregation, which is also very good. And of course, the main benefits of five G are the increased bandwidth and the ability to deploy these IoT devices. But some of those things also bring a sort of a negative effect. Uh, for example. The fact that you've got more bandwidth and more IoT devices means that these botnets that we've seen, uh, which are primarily used for DDoS DDoS attacks, have going to get more bandwidth they can leverage in the DDoS attack, and they're going to be more visible uh, when 5G comes along. Uh, so even something like slicing, if you put all your IoT devices in a particular network, 5G slice, it means that people, the, the attackers are going to know which that's a good slice to attack because there's potentially vulnerable devices there. The, the, the important thing is to make sure you treat IoT devices, the security, seriously. Uh, first of all, they should be securely configured and securely uh, deployed. You have to be able to patch these devices and get security patches out to them in, right away. The communications and the authentication that they use has to be robust and it has to be secure. A lot of the Mirai attacks are using default passwords to break into these things. That's, of course, crazy. You have to make sure that there's strong authentication and use digital certificates and stuff like that. And I think the final thing is that these devices are relatively helpless on their own. They, they should be monitored for potential security violations, monitored for potential bad traffic. And I, I would say that the carrier, uh, the network carriers, people are building the networks. They should be able to detect rogue IoT devices and remove them from their network should that be, be required, because these DDoS attacks can become quite, quite severe. That's Kevin McNamee from Nokia. You can find their threat intelligence report on their website. Here's another bit of espionage news. Stolen PII usually turns up for sale in some dark web market, of course. That's the typical way criminals monetize their take. But curiously, that apparently hasn't happened with the data lost in 2017's big Equifax breach. The information's nowhere to be found. CNBC has been speaking with sources who are convinced that a foreign intelligence service has the data, and indeed that a foreign intelligence service was responsible for hacking it in the first place. It's of course possible that a common criminal stole the information 
and then decided it was too hot to fence, but that's looking increasingly unlikely. PII are, of course, useful in social engineering, that is, in recruiting agents. Who might have been responsible is unknown. After all the creepy allegations and suspicions of espionage, it's almost with relief that we turn to more ordinary, squalid, motiveless cybercrime, and nobody does squalid and motiveless better than the creeps of Apophis Squad. We hope soon to be able to say did, putting them in the past tense. A leading alleged Apophis Squad skid, Mr. Timothy Dalton Vaughn, whose hacker names include HDG Zero, Wanted by Feds, and Xavier Farbell, was indicted by the Feds after his identity was compromised via a hacked gaming site. That an Apophis Squad member should be hoisted on his gaming petard seems almost too good to be true, but there you have it. One of his alleged confederates, Mr. George Duke Cohen, was also indicted. Their alleged activities include swatting, DDoS, doxing, bomb threats, bogus 911 calls, phony reports of airliner hijackings, in short, the whole sad customary run of skid lulls. There was a criminal commerce angle to some of their misbehavior. They are said to have advertised their services online. If you had a grudge against your high school, for example, for a small consideration, Mr. Vaughn and Duke Cohen would allegedly shoot off a bomb threat to shake things up. Should they be found guilty, and hey, they're entitled to the presumption of innocence, may their names be forgotten, may they be placed where they will do no further harm, and one hopes where they will be rehabilitated. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. 
And joining me once again is Malek Ben Salem. She's the senior R&D manager for security at Accenture Labs. Malek, it's great to have you back. Um, we wanted to touch today on uh, security when it comes to containers and specifically uh, some stuff you wanted to share about reducing the attack surface. What do you have for us today? Yeah, so this is research that we've conducted over last year and that we've recently published at Black Hat Europe. And the research looked at public container images. Uh, We know that a lot of people use the existing public container images, uh, which are full of vulnerabilities, uh, unfortunately. Hmm. Um, These are container images that are available on Docker Hub, for instance. Um, They're official Docker images that people reuse because, you know, they think they're the standard. Um, The problem is that, as I mentioned, these have potentially thousands of vulnerabilities, so if you think about a container, uh, a container, you know, runs or is supposed to run one single application, just like Unix tools, containers should be atomic in nature. They perform one task, uh, but they should perform it very efficiently, which means that a container should be developed uh, to run just that one application that it needs to run. And only the required libraries, the required binaries, files, and network protocols that are required to support that application should be part of the container. Now, uh, this is not the case for the container images that we see out there. These images are used over and over by developers, and they contain vulnerabilities that get carried over to many new operational environments. So uh, in our research, we've developed a tool that profiles the application running on each container, it identifies the subset of resources that are essential for that application to run correctly uh, and to perform its normal operations. And the profiling is container-wide, it's very fine-grained, so it comes back with that subset of required libraries, binaries, etc., and it strips out, removes the, the other libraries that are not required for that application. What this does eventually then is that it removes all the vulnerabilities associated with those libraries that are not needed for that application. Uh, Therefore, it reduces the attack surface for these containers. So according to our uh, study, we've been able to remove 50 to 70 percent of vulnerabilities uh, for these containers, uh, these container images that are out there without impacting the application's functionality. Now, help me understand, uh, how have the available uh, sort of, I guess, open-sourced containers, how have they strayed from that original intention uh, for containers, the simplicity that was uh, that was supposed to be part of the initial design? Well, I guess it's just, as we know, people like to reuse stuff. Developers are lazy when they when they can reuse stuff. They, they don't bother to create a minimal image. There are some minimal images. There's a small base uh, image layer called MidiDepth, for instance, that is supposed to be used that's available on um, uh, on Docker Hub. It's a minimalist Debian-based image that's built specifically to be used as a base image for containers. Hmm. You know, just we, we know developers, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say lazy, but just to, you know. It's, yeah, it's human nature. The easy way. So right. if there is a a container that's already running the application they're looking for, 
they don't build one from scratch with this smaller or with this minimalist base image. Mm. They just reuse uh, the available container uh, that's running the application. But then the risk there is that that container has a a lot of unnecessary stuff along for the ride that could present uh, an unnecessarily large attack surface. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, it's it's interesting uh, work you're up to there. Uh, As always, Malek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.